Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host today, Sam Boyassi here at EMG Health. And today I'm joined by Patrick Romano, who is the co-founder and partner of Eridime Consulting. Thank you for joining us today, Patrick. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Nice to meet you, Sam. Thanks so much for inviting me to this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you on board. Just want to give our listeners a quick bit of background before we dive into the interview, just in case they don't know who you are, Patrick. But for those of you who don't know, Patrick is a globe-trotting biochemist turned pharmaceutical consultant who, after 15 years in the field, co-founded his consultancy, Eridime Consulting, in 2016. His mission is to help biopharma manufacturers, vaccine developers, and medtech companies to secure a competitive edge over their rivals by helping his clients think about the constituents of trust and how these can be understood and leveraged. He's also been a visiting lecturer at Cambridge and Imperial College London, speaking on topics such as innovation, entrepreneurship, and biopharma business strategy. And in his spare time, he's a keen linguist and athlete, speaking French, Italian, and Japanese, and he has multiple marathons under his belt as well. Very impressive. But just to start with, Patrick, talk us through your former life as a biochemist. What, what first drew you to this area of science and how did it get you to where you are today? Sure. So um, it's been quite a tortuous journey and a, a fantastic adventure. Um, I'd say from a young age, I always had a fascination for how things work, particularly in the biological world. Uh, and so I pursued a degree in biology um, to kind of get things going. Um, and then this was towards the mid-90s. So towards the later 90s, this was kind of, I'd say, the dawn of, let's say, the next phase of genetic engineering. And I was particularly drawn to plant genetic engineering. So after my degree in biology, I decided to pursue a master's uh, in biotechnology at the University of York. Uh, and I kind of got the science bug at that point in time. Uh, and I wanted to do something that was, you know, as applied as it could be, whilst also leaving some space for some blue sky research. So mm. I then went on to do a PhD at the University of Sheffield, looking at something called photosynthetic acclimation, which is really trying to understand some of the mechanisms and some of the regulatory processes uh, involved in helping plants optimize their photosynthetic machinery, really to maximize productivity. So at this point, not only did I realize that I really enjoyed the process of discovery and kind of creating new value uh, by way of uh, applying the scientific method, but I, th I think also what I really enjoyed was that sense of independence and, and the opportunity to kind of be an entrepreneur in my own way, mm -hmm. which I kind of latterly realized is what a PhD can be, particularly if I have a, a supervisor, which is quite hands-off as mine thankfully was. Um, and so my, my three, four years of my PhD was time really well spent, not just from a kind of technical learning perspective, but I think also developing um, my, uh, my sense of initiative, my sense of ownership. And I think discovering that if I was left to my own devices, um, I could really uh, achieve to, to the greatest of my potential. Um, so with that PhD, I, I kind of had also a passport, almost like an academic passport um, to um, explore the world. Uh, and uh, I realized that towards the end of my PhD. So I then um, used that uh, to uh, pursue two positions, first at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, where I had a, um, a scholarship from the BBSRC for around about eight months. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I applied uh, to something called the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science uh, for a two-year um, fellowship, um, which I got. And I spent, um, ultimately, it was only one year at the Tokyo Institute of Technology, um, which is actually in Yokohama. Mm. 
Mm. Um, by then, I'd reached uh, the age of 30, and I thought, okay, I need to get a little bit more serious now, need a slightly steadier form of income. And also, I think I realized I had skills that were beyond just being in the lab. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and and I think there was a kind of a drive to do something more in the business world where I could kind of build a team uh, and, and take my career to the next level. So I was lucky at that point to join uh, what was a startup consultancy, a few guys at an attic in Hertfordshire. Uh, and uh, I kind of got the hang of it pretty quickly. Um, so within a few years, um, I built the European side of that business from four or five consultants up to around about 30. And uh, the consultancy more broadly grew to um, about 70 consultants globally. So that was a fantastic experience, not just in terms of getting to know the pharma industry, mm -hmm. uh, but also I had quite an important role from an operational perspective as well. So really understanding what does it take from an operational perspective to build a consultancy, what are the levers, how do you use them, uh, and, um, and yeah, where can you get to? Um, that company got acquired, uh, part acquired by a private equity firm in 2015, uh, at which point uh, we, we parted company. Uh, and I knew pretty much straight away that uh, I wanted to do my own thing. Um, mm. And during the, the last few months uh, in that company, I met uh, my uh, co-founder, Marcus Deans, uh, and there was definitely a kind of a meeting of minds in terms of uh, our ambition uh, and also our vision. And uh, so we kicked things off, I think, on the 1st of January uh, 2017. Mm. Uh, and it's been a, a fantastic journey since then. Certainly fantastic story. So thank you for talking us through that. When, when you first joined the consultancy world then and started getting to know the pharmaceutical industry, as you were mm. describing there, what, what did you think was the greatest unmet need uh, that you noticed clients having? And, and how did that then influence the direction of Aerodyne going forward? Well, I, I think there's two sides to this. I think, first of all, there's kind of the what in terms of what we're providing to our clients. And secondly, mm -hmm. there was kind of the how. So how are we going to be set up in order to, uh, to meet that unmet need? And um, I think um, when you look at kind of product-based value propositions, um, there's the kind of the fundamentals which are built around product efficacy, product safety, and maybe also things like kind of dosing administration and convenience. And um, in the first consultancy I worked on, a lot of work was centered around that in terms of helping our clients understand how to compete on what I would call a kind of traditional product level. Mm. Um, towards the later stages uh, of, of you know, my, my first foray into consulting, I read a book um, by a Canadian business scholar called Niraj Dawar. It's a book called Tilt that actually came out in 2014. Okay. Uh, and that was kind of a bit of an epiphany for me. And I'm, I'm not somebody who reads a lot of uh, business books, but this one here really stood out to me um, because its kind of central thesis was around um, the opportunity for strategy to move from a product-centric uh, approach to more of a customer-centric approach. Mm. Uh, and I felt a lot of the examples that he drew upon weren't uh, in pharma, actually, and I, but I thought there was a lot of parallels in terms of opportunity within pharma to exploit uh, some of these principles. And so on that basis, uh, Marcus and I set out to really think about how can we help clients think about, let's, let's call them non-traditional sources of, of competitive advantage, which are 
things that you would call, for example, around the pill. Um, so not just focusing on, on the product itself and its attributes, but also what are the things that pharma companies can do around um, a specific therapy to kind of build value, build relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a lot of our work is actually centered on that and not just the product level, but also at a portfolio level and at a corporate level, which are dimensions which I think uh, are often left out when you think about how to compete. So that was the opportunity in terms of what we were going to do. And then secondly, it was around how we would do it. Um, and um, in in my first consultancy, I think having come out of a PhD, uh, I was uh, somewhat institutionalized into thinking that you know a PhD mindset would give you everything that you needed to be a great researcher, uh, to collect the data, to be a great consultant. But I think that's something that I absolutely kind of revisited and challenged uh, in my transition into my own or into our consultancy. Mm. Uh, And so what that meant was that we kind of consciously embarked on what I would call a less research skill centric approach to hiring people. And actually the kind of the central tenets of what we tried to develop in our consultants is is more around kind of communication skills Mm. um, and strategic thinking, because we really think that this is fundamental to adding value to particularly senior decision makers who want to have you know, the, the, the core of the insight as quickly as possible and as clearly as possible. And on top of that, I think it's also really about approaching things uh, from a kind of top-down commercial perspective rather than necessarily from a bottom-up kind of clinical scientific yeah. perspective. Um, so those are really kind of the, the founding principles of, of, of Aerodyne in terms of the opportunity. And I think finally, um, the cherry on the top for us has been uh, something which kind of for me personally is quite important, which is about giving something back to the kind of graduate and job seeker community. And we mm. built something called the Center of Excellence, which is really um, a, a kind of an institution that we're really going to build and focus on um, so that we can educate and inspire aspiring consultants through immersive learning experiences, which are run by our own team of consultants. Brilliant. Love that. And that is that in itself doing that is quite inspiring. So yeah, that, that's absolutely brilliant work. You touched on it there, Patrick, but I wanted to mm. go into it in a bit more detail. So the pharmaceutical landscape is becoming even more competitive. That's not a secret. And you mentioned their uh, product value proposition, but, but what are the key pillars of product value proposition fit for the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think yeah, building on, on on my points in the previous question, I think one of the the key considerations around this kind of non traditional uh, approach to to competing um, for me at a product level is really thinking about the fact that decisions by prescribers uh, are made with the heart as well as with the head, particularly where there are uh, increasingly um, small uh, amounts of differentiation between products. So, for example, the quality of the relationship between pharma companies and those prescribers is much broader than just the attributes of the product that is being sold. Um, yeah. I think there are there are there are great opportunities, and we've explored many of these just in the last three or four years for companies and their sales organisations to really try to get into the head of what those particular prescribers, be it specialists, GPs, go through when they consider uh, an approach to treating a disease. So things like the medical affairs function for me are really, really fundamental in terms of making that a very holistic um, function, not one that just focuses on the on the, on the clinical side yeah. of things or on the science side of things, but also tries to get into the reality uh, of what it's like uh, to, to, to treat a patient with a, with a specific condition. 
So I think that's one side at a kind of product level. Um, on, on, a, on a more um, kind of holistic level, um, I think there's there's definitely the sense that countries are increasingly adopting a, a value-based healthcare approach to dealing with pharma companies. So I think that embedding that concept of value, um, particularly when viewed through the lens of a payer or a healthcare system, and doing it from as early as possible in the product development process is really fundamental to that um, kind of future fit value proposition. So that's something that we focus on a lot drawing on uh, Marcus's experience, particularly on the market access side of things. And and one that we're continuously surprised uh, seems to be overlooked or seems to be a kind of a bolt-on later in development um, than, than than we think it should be. Yeah, definitely. And and kind of looking, looking forward and perhaps mm-hmm. considering the situation that we're in right now, which is uh, the COVID-19 crisis, because it has caused the lines between pharma and public health to a certain extent to, to blur. So how, in your opinion, can pharma balance corporate responsibility with ensuring they survive the economic downturn that potentially lies ahead? Yeah, that's quite a, a tricky and complex question, I would say. And I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's a tough balancing act um, because yeah. I think, uh, as, as we all know, pharma and their reputation has been something that arguably they haven't been great at managing uh, for many reasons. Um, I think first and foremost, the the economics of drug development and pricing um, and the associated risks and costs are a very complex subject, which can be rife with emotion. So, you know, we've seen varying reactions to pricing um, COVID-19 related treatments like remdesivir, for example. And I think that pharma are not very good at defending themselves in this battleground and actually the public are not very forgiving. Um, so I think I think that's a difficult path to go down, uh, and it will be interesting to see as and when, fingers crossed, the vaccines uh, begin to to get, hit their endpoints and get rolled out uh, as to as to where that pricing will be, uh, and how that will play out in terms of the public perception. I think there are other things though that pharma companies can do, um, and and actually have done, I think, quite successfully during this um, this unique period. I think the first thing is them taking what I call disproportionate risks. Um, and I, for one, have been uh, very surprised and impressed by the likes of AstraZeneca, for example, that is probably not traditionally considered a vaccines company. The level of investment, um, the level of impact, the level of collaboration that they've shown uh, in, in in pushing for the development uh, and associated investment uh, with their vaccine. So I think the risk taking is something that, that, that definitely uh, requires revisiting and, and maybe increasing. I think the second thing, which again has been, in my view, disproportionately impressive, is the level of collaboration uh, that we've seen between pharma companies. So, you know, historic rivals, for example, GSK and Sanofi, working together uh, on yeah. developing uh, a vaccine. And I think finally, you know, this is going back to my point about communication. It's really transparency, um, and I think I've been again quite impressed with the level of detail that has been shared um, around what is happening behind the scenes in the clinics. I think just earlier this week, Alex Burla, the Pfizer CEO, uh, you know, wrote a note to the public providing a very detailed description of where exactly uh, their vaccine is in development um, and what are the two or three specific hurdles that need to be gotten through before that vaccine can become available. So I would definitely invite uh, pharma companies to uh, to really kind of push the boundaries of, of communication and particularly make them as transparent as possible to build those relationships um, with, with the public and, and with their stakeholders. Yeah, definitely. 
So we touched on this briefly in your intro, but I'm keen to know a bit more, Patrick. What in your experience are some of the important cultural constituents that pharma companies need to begin to build or prioritise if they want to protect their organisations against macro market headwinds? Yeah, well, culture is is something that and company culture is something I've always been interested in uh, because it's so fundamental to driving behaviors um, and then driving strategies and ultimately driving tactics. So I think one of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed being part of Aerodyme is working with organizations um, that are very open to learning. Um, and I think particularly now where the pharmaceutical landscape and uh, healthcare players more broadly um, are beginning, beginning to build out uh, into what I'd call more traditional players, uh, I think that kind of continuous monitoring and understanding uh, of what I would call those non-traditional competitors is, is fundamental. So mm. technology companies like Samsung, Apple, Google, but also the likes of Amazon, um, I think as the market becomes more patient-centric, these companies, you know, they really understand the consumer. And also they have, as we know, increasing amounts of data. So these are really ones to watch. Um, finally, as personalized medicine uh, becomes increasingly part of, of the ecosystem, I think, again, um, all of that, that, the genetic information which will come uh, from those technologies and, and those therapies uh, are, are ones which pharma companies may potentially be at a risk in handling, um, whereas some of the technology giants that I've mentioned, that is their business, that is what they do. So I think for pharma companies to continue to understand and monitor and learn uh, from the way uh, in which these non-traditional players are, are, are making Absolutely. their foray into healthcare is really important. So learning is one. The second one, um, I think, is kind of creativity. Um, and um, someone I know mm. said, you know, getting out of your comfort zone is, is where the magic happens. Uh, and I think, you know, as in organ organizations, there's a tendency to kind of stick to what you know. Uh, but I think particularly through what we've learned from some of these non-traditional approaches to competing, there's definitely space for, for pharma companies to take a more creative approach, not just at a product level, but also at a portfolio level uh, in terms of how they go about their business. And I think added to that is this kind of concept of experimentation. Um, so maybe going outside of your comfort zone to engage with organizations uh, that might help you think better and differently to what you might normally uh, consider mm. an approach to developing a product or, or managing a portfolio. So learning and creativity. Love it. And kind of the, the point that you made, which I particularly like, is the comfort zone, uh, because Actually, from my perspective, I don't know if I'm the only one, but mm. I don't really hear that being talked about a lot when it comes to pharmaceutical industries in particular. Um, so certainly completely agree with what you said there. Final question for you, Patrick. It's my favorite one. So you spent time in Tokyo while working as a biochemist, which, which you explained earlier. So if you could borrow one element of mm. Japanese culture and bring it to the Western economies, what would you choose and why? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I think I, you know, the, the twelve months that I spent um, in in Japan, I learned so much about Japanese culture. Which, um, of course, mm. there are some similarities with with Western culture, but I think there are also some some very unique traits and some very unique ways of of doing doing business across the board. Um, I think the one that really sticks with me, and I think anyone who's been to Japan, who's been to an izakaya or a, you know a, a restaurant or a cafe. Uh, or even a supermarket is mm. is almost the obsession with customer service, uh, and uh, I, I was I was just blown away wherever I was in Japan, and you know I, I travel from the top to the bottom um, of the country. Um, that 
it was just so central to how they operated. It's almost a congenital attribute that they have that uh, maybe come come having yeah. come from the, the need to kind of survive, um, which just seems to be so embedded in everything they do. Um, and I think that's something that, particularly in the West and certainly in some some European countries where um, you know the, the the products speak for themselves to a degree that. The, the, the service element almost becomes um, redundant. Um, I think there's definitely been a loss in, in the appreciation of the art of product plus service having to go together to mm-hmm. create kind of the ultimate customer experience. Um, and I think that kind of brings us full, cir- full circle in a way because um, one of the things that, that I think sometimes lack or is lacking in, in the way that pharmaceutical yeah. companies approach the market is that sense of humility. Um, because you know the pharmaceutical development process, particularly in the early stages, is so much about innovation, uh, and uh, it's, it's obviously a big buzzword and it's very exciting. But I think sometimes pharma companies maybe lose sight of um, of that that customer and how important it is to really think about, like I said before, not just the head but also the heart. Um, and so certainly that that part of uh, the Japanese way of of being and of doing business is something that. Um, pharma companies and Western economies more broadly uh, should um, should should think about and, and take advantage of. Oh yes, it's always been on my bucket list, but predominantly for the food. That's the main reason I've always. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. But Patrick, that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with us. We really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. So nice talking to you. Absolutely. And to all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And please join me again next week to hear from another fascinating guest on the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you and take care.